Alrighty, guys, let's get back to our seats. Okie dokie. If you're joining us today for the first time, it's kind of a cool, cool timing because we're starting into a new. Um, Starting into, hey, I actually have a pre-announcement. My wife just reminded me of something. We've been kind of reevaluating um, our security as a church in light of, um, you know, things. <laughs> and one thing that we noticed is, and we're going to talk about this in the next coming months, is we want to eventually close in this breezeway so we can use it as more of like a lobby and stuff like that, move all this coffee stuff out there and things like that. But right now we have all of us in this room and all the kids in the other room. So from now on, when the kids go over there, um, at this point, we're going to lock those doors. And there's always adults in there by the door. So if you need to go in there and get your kids, just knock. But that way, nobody can just run in there. So I know that's a little bit of a downer to start on, but I just want to let everybody know that. Um, but like I said, if this is your first time coming, this is kind of a cool moment because we're starting into a new series. Uh, and we're going to be going through two books this fall. They're not really the same series. One, we're going to go through the book of Jude, and then the next one, we're going to take a lot more time probably going through the book of James. Um, so let me pray, and then we'll get right into it, all right? So Father, I pray that you would bless this word, bless these words that we read from your scripture, help us to hear the message you want us to hear from them, these words. We pray that you would bless the children as they study the same thing, that they would understand these words, that you would illuminate what you have to illuminate, that you would Open our eyes to see things in your word and things in ourselves that they would shine lights on, no matter what they are. And Lord, give us courage to follow your leading no matter where it goes. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you, want to, if you have a Bible or a phone, you can turn to Jude, and we're going we're gonna to put it up on the screen if not. So hold on. I've been thirsty. Um, so, a little bit of background before we start. You know, like some of your Bibles have an intro or a paragraph before Jude begins. It helps to know a couple things about this book so that you have some framing of what you're reading. Because um, a lot of these books in the New Testament are letters written to people, from people, for a reason. And we all benefit from it, but if you don't know who they're writing to, it's like it could confuse you about what you're reading. So, just a little bit of background. The author of this book, which is the namesake, Jude, um, is actually Jesus' brother. Now, if you really start digging around in this, there are some people that have some disagreement uh, about this, but most people agree that this book was written by a Jude, and more than likely his name was actually Judah or Judas from the tribe of Judah. You know, and people would name, like, you know how we name our kids after presidents or whatever, you know, Jewish people, name their, they were naming their kids after, like, I'm in the tribe of Judah, and I'm going to name my son. So it's like versions of that word, and we anglicized it into Jude when they put it in the, you know, the English Bible, which I kind of think they should have left it alone, but that's another conversation for another day. But Jude is Jesus' brother, and when I say brother, I don't mean like, um, hey, brother, or like brother in Christ. I mean like actually his brother, like his mom is Mary, and his dad is Joseph, probably. But he's, he's his brother. Like, they grew up kind of together. 
other interesting thing, and kind of why we decided to go with these, is James uh, is also um, Jesus' brother. So these two books that we're going to go through over the, the, this fall period were both written by, like, biological brothers of Jesus. That's kind of cool. They were known, they're mentioned kind of a little bit throughout the New Testament. We'll talk about that in a little bit. They're kind of offhand mentioned in 1 Corinthians as, like, leaders in the church, and that's why they're writing these books. This one's called a general epistle, meaning, like, like these terms that people use to kind of organize what we're looking at. Epistles, these kind of letters I was talking about. Most of them are written by Paul. You know, when you go through them, you're like, oh, Paul wrote that one. Oh, Paul also wrote that one. Oh, Paul also wrote that one. You know, Paul wrote most of these. But then there's a couple others he didn't write. And even some of these ones that, uh, like a book like Philemon, you know, Paul's writing that to a guy for a purpose, and we're all kind of listening in. You know what I mean? But there's, and so there's good stuff for everybody, but it's really it's kind of addressing some specific situations. And that one we could go through sometime. It's kind of interesting how he plays that out. This one's kind of written for everybody. That's why they call it general. You know, we, we, we know that it's written to a group, and we'll get into that, but it's kind of for everyone for all the time. You know, and it's kind of like they would also share these things around. Because back in the day, they didn't have, like, you know, books in the way we do or, like, sermon tapes or YouTube. They would kind of write down these letters and be like, hey, when you're done with this one, there's even in some instructions in Paul, he's like, hey, find that letter I sent those other guys. You need to read that one too, you know. So they were meant to be shared a little bit. One, one thing that's interesting about this book is he's writing this to uh, a group of people that are believers in Jesus that are predominantly Jewish. And they, you know that not because he says it, but because of how he references things. And he makes all of these references to not only the Old Testament, the Jewish scripture, the Jewish Bible, which he makes a lot of references to. He also makes references to other writings that Jewish people would be very familiar with that aren't inside that Bible. Okay? The reason I bring that up, there's a term for it. It's called the pseudepigrapha. And what that really means is uh, named after other people. So, like, I would write a book and some kind of teaching... And since I'm kind of nobody and I want people to care about this, I might add somebody else's name to it. You know what I mean? And then it kind of gets spread around. And then like, a couple of people away, they go, well, who wrote this? We're like, well, it's got this famous, like George Washington's name on it. So I guess it's George Washington. You see what I'm saying? And so that's how these books uh, came about. They're kind of like, they're not the same as the Bible. And they have some stuff in them that's good. There's some, some that's not. There's a reason they're not in the Bible, though. You see what I'm saying? So... Jude makes references to these alongside biblical passages, which leads people to do some weird stuff. This is why I'm taking a minute with it. He's making a point. Like, hey, you shouldn't be mean to people is a point I'm making. Let me use some examples you might know. Here's a couple examples in the Bible where people are being mean to people. Isn't that wrong? Here's another example from Star Wars. Isn't that wrong? You say, we do that kind of stuff all the time. Usually it's Star Wars if you're listening to me. But the, uh, he's making points like that. Sometimes people start to go... Well, since Jude references this pseudepigrapha, right, maybe we should really dig into that and see what it's all talking about. Some of it's kind of weird. So you can read it, you know, but just it's kind of like reader beware. His inclusion in this is to make the points he's making, not to validate it as scriptural. Does that make sense? I only say that because this is one of those books people tend to get like, hey, you know, like <laughs> they get weird with. So let's try not to get weird. The other thing I want to recommend is Go to YouTube, and if you get our daily emails, Kevin's going to send this out tomorrow. The Bible Project, which is a great resource on the Bible, they do these awesome 
kind of drawing, teaching videos. And we've handed out this, we're going to hand this out to the kids today on the back of their teaching. They make like a, kind of like a poster that walks you through all the parts of the book visually. And on the video, they kind of do it as they go, and it really lays out what this book is about in a really good way. So I highly recommend that you check out YouTube, go Bible Project, or you just go to Google and say Bible Project Jude, and it'll pop up, and it's just really good. Kevin will send it out tomorrow, like I said. So the main subject for this week and next week. This week, we're going to go through kind of like two-thirds of Jude, and then um, next week, we're going to kind of go through some of the punchline. <laughs> and it's kind of a downer a little bit. I'm going to be frank. Like, this one's a challenge. You're coming like, well, I want a hero uplifting message to make me feel better about myself. I don't know if this may not be the one, but, <laughs> but it's important. So we gotta, we got to face the facts here. So the, the main theme of this whole thing is about contending for the faith. This idea that we have a faith, it is a thing, and that we as believers are being challenged by Jude, that we need to contend for it. And it's an important message because we need to contend for the faith today. I don't know if you noticed. We don't need to get into that. We need to contend for the faith in the world. We need to contend for the faith in our own family. We need to contend for the faith in ourselves. In all these areas, this book will apply. But it's also important that we contend properly. We'll get into that. So let's just start reading it. What we're going to do is we're going to just read, and as we read through it, I'll just kind of make some commentary points, and then we'll kind of wrap it up at the end. And, um, and I invite you, we're, we're, only, we're only going through this for two weeks. Take some time and read this in the in-between times, because some of these things are things you need to ponder more than just, you know, I can hand them to you, but you've got to really think about it. You know, this one's been kind of working on me this week. So let's start with verse 1. And it's only one chapter, so it's not that long. You could read it multiple times a day without even impacting your life or average YouTube viewing. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, which is an interesting way to start. Like, this guy's literally Jesus' brother. And he doesn't go, Jude, you know, Jesus' brother Jude. You know, he describes himself as a servant of Jesus, which is important to kind of start framing the whole conversation. He's not coming in going like, hey, you know, I, mean, like, I could, you know, he could name drop. And, but he's, he's become Christ-like in that Jesus didn't use his position in any way to, like, benefit himself, you know. Jude's doing the same thing. He describes himself properly, as any follower of Jesus would, as a servant of Jesus. That's what he is. He's also the brother of James, as we said before. James is also an English name. It should be Jacob. That's another tidbit. So Judah, a servant of Jesus Christ, a brother of Jacob. Judah, a servant of Yeshua. <laughs> I'm probably going to go to whatever. We do this. Um, to those who have been called who are loved in God and the Father, loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So he's writing this book to those who are called. He's writing this book to believers, to Christian people. So if you go, I'm not too sure about this whole Jesus bit, a lot of what I'm going to say isn't going to make sense to you. Doesn't mean you shouldn't listen. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff here. But he's writing to Christian people, okay? That's assumed in the thing. That's why I said it's important to know who are we writing to. Is this just anybody who would hear it? It's like, well, anybody can read it, but I'm talking to believers now. So if you say, I follow Jesus, he's talking to you, okay? If you say, I don't know, keep reading. But he says this, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. He wants to set a tone for the whole thing. Mercy, peace, and love 
be yours in abundance. He's saying through what Jesus has done, you experience these things. I want you to experience it. Jesus says life to the full, that kind of thing. I want you to have all of these things. They be yours in abundance. And it starts to be because Jesus gives us mercy, we have mercy on ourselves and we have mercy on other people. Like, I'm not so hard on myself like I used to be, and I'm not going to be so hard on other people. And then peace that what Byron was literally just talking about, you know, this peace that passes understanding. Not that you understand, that passes understanding and allows you to have peace in circumstances that don't make any sense or are horrible because of this, because of Jesus, because we are loved by God the Father and kept in Jesus Christ, mercy and peace are ours, and the love that we have love from God to us, so we love him in return, and we also love those people around us, even the mean ones. And he needs to set this up as the tone because he's about to start to, like, turn the volume up. I don't know if you've read, you know. So that's the tone. Don't lose that. We'll come back to it. Mercy, peace, and love. These are good things. This is what he's saying. You have believers in Jesus. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So he wanted to write them a different book about the salvation that Jesus brought, which would be a good book to read. You know, it's kind of unfortunate we don't have it. The situation, though, made him have to write something else. So he wanted to do something. He has to write something else. And the main thing he's saying, like, the situation you guys are in and that I need to address has caused me to need to write you a reminder to contend for the faith. That's the whole theme of this whole thing. I would say even next week, which will emphasize some other stuff, it's still about contending for the faith. This contending, and if you look up what contend means, just Google it, or, you know, you can look up a dictionary if you still have one. <laughs> That's a book that would go on a shelf. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. The, uh, it means to struggle or to surmount, struggle to surmount a difficulty or danger, assert something as a position in an argument. So a couple of notes on that. It's not a passive word. Would you describe that as passive, to struggle or to surmount something or to assert something as a position in an argument? It's not passive. So if you think that you're contending for the faith by doing nothing, you're probably not. It's not passive. It's also necessary. He's saying, I wanted to write another book about salvation that we have in Jesus, which is pretty important, like most important, like very important. He's like, but I have to write you this other thing to remind you that we have to contend for our faith. So it's an active thing you, ha- you have to do. It's necessary. And the other thing is you can take from this is that it's not automatic. Meaning that if just following Jesus accomplished it, he wouldn't have to remind you to do it. He's saying, I have to remind you to contend for this faith that we've been given because it's necessary. And you're going to have to do something about it. Immediately, I know what you're thinking. Well, actually, I don't. I think I know what you're thinking. Some of you might be thinking this. <laughs> you might immediately be like, well, so you want me to like go out on the street with signs and stuff like that about Jesus? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that's always bad. What I am saying, though, is that we immediately jump to versions of this that we find incredibly unattractive. Or maybe even worse, I mean, I find this worse, um, 
how people represent their faith online to other people. You know, there's like some memo went out that everybody, you're, if, as long as you say Jesus, you can be a jerk to people, and that's being bold. And I was like, I didn't get that memo, you know, because it sounds like a lot of fun, but it also sounds like sin to me, so I don't think it's, that's not a good memo. Point is, a lot of us don't want to contend for the faith because we see other people we think might be doing it, and they're jerks. So that stops us. Some people are just jerks, and so we go, I don't want to be a jerk like that guy. Another thing is um, that, and I'll define it this way. You say, well, what does a jerk mean? Like, maybe I just don't like that guy. Remember those three words, the love, mercy, and peace? That should define all of this stuff that we're doing. So we're contending for the faith, filled with love, mercy, and peace. Kind of sums it up. And I, I also see this is one of the reasons we go, like, well, I don't, I don't know. Look, look, I get it. You want to contend for the faith? You and Kevin, y'all are pastors. You do that. I just come here, okay? Why are you yelling at me about it? You know, I get it. I get it. Because most everybody doesn't, want to, doesn't need to stand up on a stage and talk about any of this stuff. I'll say probably most of you never will. It doesn't matter. And it really isn't any better or worse. The point is somebody needs to do it. Sometimes it'll be me, sometimes it'll be somebody else. But you're the only person that's living your life. God puts you in situations that I'll never be in. You know, through the weirdness of this streaming thing, which I'm not totally even cool with, there might be somebody watching this that lives in some other country right now. And I'm never going to be there. Or even if I do go visit, I'm not there right now. You know what I mean? And so there's no contending I'm going to do there. You turn this thing off and you go outside and you encounter people. I'll never see that person we're all called to contend, but here's the thing. Don't cut yourself out by going, well, most people who do that are jerks, so I don't want to be a jerk, so I'm not going to do that. Okay, delete that. You don't have to do it as a jerk. Like, I will say you can't do it as a jerk. That's actually self-defeating, so that's wrong. The other thing is that God made you in a certain way, put you in a certain place at a certain time to be a certain person, so stop defining it either wrongly or too limited. Well, like, well, I, I don't feel comfortable going up on stage and praying like those people just did. I don't care. You probably don't have to. You have to live your life, okay? Sometimes it's going to challenge you because you have to contend. It's not passive. It's like, well, maybe they'll just notice. This doesn't work that way, but you have to, <laughs> but they have to um, do it in your own way. And your own way may not look like anything you've ever seen another Christian person do. There have been Christian people doing it. You just may not have seen it, okay? Anyway, I made that point. I don't want to get too far into it. Next, next part. For certain individuals, this is, so now we're starting to get into the meat of it. He's talking about, I need you to contend for the faith. Well, you go, well, why? Like, what do we contend against what? For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. You're like, whoa, okay. That got, you know, that escalated quickly. So he's talking mostly in this context about some people that had gotten into their group and were teaching some things that he's describing as false teachers. So they're, this is where it gets interesting. They're talking about Jesus, which we'd go, that sounds good, right? Anybody talking about Jesus is good. It's like, well, yeah, that's partially true. But it says that they're, they're using the grace that Jesus has given them as a license 
to do wrong things. And by that, they're denying who Jesus is. So they might talk the talk, but they're not walking the walk. You see? But you might get into conversation with them, and they go, well, they really know all the Bible parts right. You know, he's not talking about denying him. Like, well, <laughs> let's not get into the Jesus thing. You know, they're kind of there with you on the words. But by how they're living, they're denying Jesus and what he's actually done. Okay? Jackie Hill Perry used these scriptures when she was teaching through this. I was watching some of those with my wife. Immediately, she went to Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. And in Titus 1.16, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for anything good. That's intense. I'm going to read that again. They claim to know God. It's easy to claim things, right? I'm going to post a little picture about my Bible. You know. It's really easy to claim things. I try to put it in our context, all right? Okay? That's why I'm doing that. It's easy to post things. But they, by their actions, they deny him. And then so, what are those people like? They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for anything good. Leave it to God to write a pretty intense insult. That's, that's, that's no joke. Um... So it's some idea of, I can, as long as I get my thoughts right or say the right things, we're all good, me and the God thing and the church thing and the whatever. It doesn't matter what I do. Now, most of us would go like, well, when you put it that way, no one believes that. But it sneaks around. That's what you're saying. These people snuck in. They're not like, <laughs> they're not, it's not always obvious. We'll get into that. I don't want to get too far ahead. So he starts to give some examples, right? What is that going to be like? What is that like to you guys? What does it mean for this to be happening? And he starts going through the Old Testament, like I was saying. Though you already know all this, see, he knows, you guys know all these stories, but though you already know this, I want to remind you, the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but then later destroyed those who did not believe. He's talking about, you know, God, the Israelites are captive in Egypt. God sends Moses, the whole thing, I mean, the whole Passover story, the whole thing, they go through the, <laughs> through the Red Sea. They go all the way. God's like, I'm taking you to the, to the land of milk and honey. That's going to be great. And they follow Moses, kind of. They get complained a lot, but they get there. All that whole story in Exodus, which is like the hugest story. It's what the Passover feast is even to remember. Like this is God doing really impressive God stuff. And these people all experienced all that God stuff. So you go like, well, (laughs) how do you know God's real? It was like, well, when I was younger, we were about to be killed by the Egyptian army and God split the sea in half and we walked through it or whatever. You go, oh, that's kind of intense. You're like, yeah. You kind of, and we might go, well, if I saw that, I certainly would believe God when God did something. When God did something like that in my life, I would, I would never doubt him again. I mean, who's thought something like that? And you could fill in the blank. Well, then they get to the, the land. And they're like, hey, let's send some guys in to check it out. And you can see this in, in Numbers 14. They get there. They send in 12 spies. And then 10 of them come back and go, guys, this isn't going to work. These are like really big people. And they're, like, really good at fighting stuff. Like, who are we anyway, you know? And only Joshua and Caleb go, I think we can take them. Because if God's with, I mean, like, why would, he did the sea thing. Why would he stop now? And they go, nah, I don't think so. 
They're big. So, like, nobody knows who those 10 guys are. Well, Joshua's got a book in the, in the book. The thing to take away from that is that we all assume, well, I'm Joshua, probably. I mean, <laughs> maybe Caleb, but I mean, at least one of those two guys. I'm not one of these 10 other people that are like, look at these losers, you know? And uh, <laughs> the, the scary part is uh, there's 10 of these guys. There's only two of them. So if the numbers, lie, I mean, most of us, it is what happens. And this is the warning to us. Everybody listens to those guys. So God's like, okay, like, I'm still going to do this thing I said, but all you guys, go back and I'm going to wait till you die. And only Joshua and these, they're going to go in with everybody else after you die. So God is awesome. God is forgiving. God is merciful. God is all those things we just said about peace and love. And he's, doing his, and he's taking these people out of slavery, like hundreds of years of slavery. He's taking them out of that with miracles, not just like, we did some cool stuff and we worked it out with the government. It wasn't, it was like, there's like strange, fantastic things happening. Plagues, darkness, all sorts of weird stuff. Miracles, you know. Get your attention kind of stuff. And after that, they still doubt God. Kind of like we do. And God's like, fine, I'm going to let you go die. And you're not going into the, you know, I'm still going to take them there, but just you're not going to go. That's intense. That's the point he's trying to make. He goes on, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority and, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgments on the great day. So this might reference a couple different things in, in Genesis and a couple other places, but he's talking about angels. So the first one is doubting God. There's judgment for that, right? The second one is about rebellion. They're like, you know, I don't want to do what you made me to do. I want to do something else. And God's like, okay, no. And so there's judgment on that. So you have rebellion. So you have doubt equals judgment. Rebellion equals judgment. And then um, he goes on. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So now he's going really hardcore because Sodom and Gomorrah is not the kind of place that, like you reference that, only at intense times, because in that story, this, this city becomes so immoral, full of sexual immorality, just every kind of bad thing, that God's like, this is just going to have to, like, destroy it. And he does. So that city is destroyed. And I don't mean, like, metaphorically destroyed. Like, look, it's kind of a dump around here now. You know, like, look what comes of the place when we all live poorly. It's not like that. Like, God's like, no, I'm going to, like, destroy it. Like a nuclear bomb sort of thing. This is intense, and he's bringing this up to remind you that like, God takes this stuff seriously. He takes seriously doubt. He takes seriously rebellion, and he takes seriously immorality. And in this specific context, he's talking about sexual immorality, which our society is completely filled with of all sorts. I mean, even the stuff we watch on TV at all the time, it's like, why are we okay with this? You know what I mean? Turn it off. <laughs> or at least look down, for goodness sake. In the very same way, on the strength of our dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority. Now he's talking about these guys that are snuck in, right? Reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. So he's referencing back to those three things. Pollute their bodies to sexual and reject authority. That's the, uh, um, the rebellion and the doubt. And heap abuses on celestial beings, which is like these 
these angels that like, he's like, look what happened to these angels, guys, you know. And then here's where we get to one of these interesting references I made before. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these, yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do not understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. So that what you're like, I've never, I don't remember that Michael story. Where is that? That's in, that's one of the pseudepigrapher things I was talking about. Um, he, he's, a, he's referencing a story that, uh, he's, the point is the same as, like what I was saying before, we don't need to start getting into this whole book. It's, it's about the idea that even an archangel like Michael in that story doesn't assume a position he shouldn't have. He's like, hey, look, Lord rebuke you, you know. I'm going to stand on that. I'm not going to stand on this. Like the devil, who do you think you are? He's like, look, the Lord rebuke you, not me. And then these guys are like, I'll rebuke whatever I want. The kind of arrogance it takes to live like that. This is the point he's making. And then he keeps going using some other examples from the Old Testament. Woe to them, for they have taken the way of Cain, which if you remember, Cain and Abel, the story after Adam, he's jealous. And he kills his brother, and then God's like, where's your brother? He's like, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? That's where that comes from, if you never knew that. And he's like, yeah, you killed him. You know what I mean? Um, or they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Now, that's a weird story where the guy tries to hire a prophet to curse Israel, and then like he can't do it because his donkey won't go there. And then finally his donkey says to him, why are you beating me? And it's this whole weird story about how the guy can't do it. But then later he finds a way to like kind of sneak in and uh, seduce them into sin like a different way. Like I'm not going to stand up here and declare things. I'll just kind of sneak in this way. And he does it for money. So, so, so he's not jealous as much as Cain was. His jealousy for you know, power or for prestige or God's approval or something. He's just like, hey, you know, whatever I got to do to make a buck, you know, hey, I'm gonna, I'll do it. You know, these people he's saying are acting like that. They're just doing this for some sort of financial gain. Because there's a lot of gain, I'll tell you this, even in the church, in the world, there's a lot of gain in preaching certain messages. And that can start to distort things. Keep going. It says, they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. There's another interesting story. Korah and these guys come up to Moses and they're like, who do you think you are? You know, we're, the, we're all Israelites, you know, and they start to challenge God or challenge Moses, and challenging God really through what Moses has done, that, you know, you're not doing this, right? We can stand up for God. And God, the whole story goes, basically, the end of the story is their rebellion against authority and against God's authority is God swallows them up in the ground. And everything they own, like the ground opens, they go in and they go away. So if you haven't picked up the memo yet, he's bringing up some pretty intense stuff from all over the Old Testament and even some other like adjacent writings that they would all know. And he's using that to talk about people that are in their church. Okay? These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. And then he starts to get into just some kind of descriptive language here. They are clouds without rain, blowing along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted, twice dead. Now, we're not agricultural like these guys were, but autumn trees should have fruit on them. So he's not even saying, not only did they not have fruit, they're like ripped out of the ground. That's why he says it's twice dead. Like you didn't do anything, and you're dead. 
or not grounded or whatever, you know. There are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness in all of the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against them. That's another one of those references I was talking about from the book of Enoch. But the point is here that God is going to judge this unfaithfulness. This isn't going to last forever. You're not going to get away with it. And so he's wanting everyone to contend for the true faith against this other thing that's happening with the hope, and he gets into this kind of next week, but I'll give you a little preview, that everyone will repent. But I'm warning, he's warning everybody because, like, <laughs> this is serious. Like, you're like, ah, what's the big deal? You know, what things in our lives do we go, ah, what's the big deal? You know, does God, I mean, is God really going to care about, you know? That kind of line of thinking can, it goes, it, goes, it goes wrong pretty quick. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. So these people, like, they're, they're talking about themselves all the time. They're doing things following evil desires. They boast all the time, which people do. They flatter others for their own advantage. That means they give you compliments so you'll give them what they want. Like, that guy makes me feel good. I want to be his friend. And then they take advantage of you. He's letting these people know he knows what's up. You know, he's saying, I see what you're doing. Keep in mind, these books were read out loud in front of a whole group. So it'd be like me standing up here just like I am now, just reading it. But it was written about some of us. You'd be like, oh, you know. I'm like, did he really say that? Um, this is a warning against false teachers. Um. Is that the, yeah, that's the end of it, isn't it? Let me make sure I'm, not yet. There, while, go to the next part. Uh, I, I, that's another scripture. Okay, I think I left out the last little piece. They are grumblers and fault finders. Follow only their evil desires, and they boast about themselves and flatter others on their own advantage. Okay, so from this point on, I have to make an apology for the slides. I don't think, they may or may not go along with what, so just listen, all right? Use your ears. <laughs> And if they're in there, go ahead and put it up. If not, you know, that's my fault. And I'm really sad because there's a cool, well, yeah, whatever. There's a warning against false teachers, all right? That's the predominant thing we got going on. And I want to say the last chunk that we're going to study next week is going to explain sort of the application of this whole thing. What we've just teed up is that God takes rebellion, doubt, uh, sexual immorality, um, greed, uh, all these things. He takes them very seriously. He's going to judge them. And there's people that are in your midst that have snuck in and are living this way. And they're teaching other people to do the same thing. So you need to contend for the faith. So the biggest warning here is against false teachers. And in Matthew 7, Jesus talks of this. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Y'all remember the old cartoons where the wily e. coyote would like 
I need a, see, I had a picture. I need a picture. I don't have a picture. Some of y'all kids haven't, they don't show those on TV anymore. But he would put on sheep's wool and walk around in the sheep for a while till the dog came and like beat him up or whatever. But they, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. They look like a sheep, but they're not. By their fruit, you will recognize them. How do you recognize them? What fruit? There are how many followers they have? How many likes? It's talking about like their actual lives, which is the stuff that Jude was just talking about. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? That's, that's ouch. Or figs from thistles? That's Jesus now saying this, you know. Here's the thing. This is where this is scary. Because, and, and this is the interesting and good part probably of Jude, is that he's not like, like the book of Philemon. Paul's like naming folks. Like, hey, buddy, you know, I'm, I'm sending this guy back to you. Who's, <laughs> he's my friend now, so he's going to be. Your friend, too. You know what I'm saying? Because this guy was a slave, you know, and he got away, and Paul's like, and he's like, you know, and I'm not going to remind you that you owe me everything, like your whole salvation. and everything. I'm not going to remind you of that, you know. But, you know, if he owes you anything, just charge it to me, you know, the main Christian person. Just charge it to me. That's what we'll do, you know. So he's naming people out like that, you know, and we can still learn a lot from that. We'll probably have to go through that sometime because I like that book. But the... Uh, this one is just, there's people are there. And he says in there, I know you already know what I'm talking about, but we don't. <laughs> so it makes it easy in one sense to apply because we don't have to get distracted by like, well, is this Philemon situation, you know, this is like false teachers. But here's where it gets hard. Wolves in sheep's clothing look like sheep from far away. That's the point. They don't look like wolves. Because they look like wolves, they wouldn't be there because everybody would freak out. Like wolves, when they come into the sheep, the shepherds go, you know. If you could dress a wolf up like a sheep, they can sneak around for a while and maybe get a couple, right? That was the whole plot of that cartoon that I don't have a slide of. So you go, well, who, who are they? They could be anybody. They could be thought leaders. That's a word. Or influencers. I don't like either one of those words, but whatever. It's 2022. So, <laughs> they could be influencers. <laughs> they could be podcasters. They could have degrees. They could have written a whole bunch of books. They could be pastors. They could be missionaries. They could be anybody. And, they, and this book is reminding us that they might fool us. They're not fooling God. And we can recognize them by their fruit. But with some of those categories of people, we don't always have access to the fruit. Because that book might have sold a million copies. But it might be not good at all. Or you might even find out that they bought half those copies just to make it look like it was on the New York Times bestseller list. They bought them themselves. These Christian people were doing that stuff. I was like, what? <laughs> you know? So 
So, how do we know that? Uh, well, see, I wish I'd put this in a different order. We'll get to it. They could be anybody, right? But they're not getting away with it. We'll get into how to recognize it in a second. You can recognize it from their lives, and I even think a kid could recognize it, but we'll get into what the faith is in a second. But you go, well, great. <laughs> Good. We're reading through this book, the Jude thing. I got it. Don't be a false teacher. I'm not a teacher, so I'm good. That's awesome. You and Kevin need to worry about that, but I am good. So, sorry for you. Try not to be that, or you're going to get swallowed up by the earth. Well, <laughs> you know what I'm going to say. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're called to contend for the faith, he's talking to you too. He's not just talking to people like Kevin and I. There are other scriptures that say, we have extra stuff to worry about, so I better be really careful while I'm up here talking. But this is for everybody. You are a contender. You are not a passive Christian person. That doesn't exist. If you follow Jesus, you have to contend for your faith. If you aren't doing that, you aren't contending. Like, I mean, if you're not doing something, then you're not contending, you know? And the warning is to you, too, because you don't want to get swallowed up in the ground any more than I do. You don't want to receive the wrath or the judgment of God. But you go, well, how do I know what the, how do I recognize these people from the fruit, or what is this faith you're talking about? Like, the faith delivered to the saints? You know, he's like, Christianity? Like, what do we, and that is what it's talking about. It's not talking about, like, the idea of faith, like, I have faith, brother. It's talking about, like, what, is, what are you believing in? Like, what is, what is it that you're actually believing? Like, what are you talking about? Like, is it the gospel? I mean, yes. But is it, like, what, like, how would you describe that? Well, one of the cool things we have is in 1 Corinthians, Paul does that. So I'm going to read it to you. I don't know if I put it on a slide. So listen. <laughs> 1 Corinthians, write this down. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. All right? And I'll talk about a couple more of these next week. There's a couple places. What we call the gospel what Paul called the gospel, overlap, but may not be exactly the same thing. We could talk about this another time. But Paul literally lays it out right here. And this includes everything we would probably call the gospel as Protestant people, but I don't want to get too Bible nerded out. Let's just focus on this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel... You are saved. You're like, well, good. What is it, right? If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain, like believed false teachers, like believed these guys, right? For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, just like what he said. Contend for the faith once delivered to the saints, and he delivered it to you. And you're like, well, good. What is it? <laughs> of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then He appeared to Peter and the Twelve, and it keeps going on. It says, even appeared to me. even appeared to me. One un 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 unlikely born or whatever. I just didn't conclude all of it. So the gospel, the bedrock gospel, this, the, the faith that we are gathered here 2,000 years after this stuff was written to be a part of, that we are saved by. He says that. You are saved by this, is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. 
You hear that suffix part? According to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to people and they told everybody about it. That's the gospel. And we say according to the scriptures. Well, okay, I get it. Jesus died. But then it has that according to the scriptures part. What is it talking about? That's the Old Testament, guys. So what he's saying, Paul is saying here, is that Jesus came and accomplished all of the things. The word also is used as fulfilled. All of these things that God started through Abraham and Israel and the whole story leading up to what Jesus did. He's saying Jesus did this stuff. He finally came and accomplished, and you can read the book of Hebrews. He talks more and more about this, that Jesus actually did all the things the scriptures foretold, accomplishing salvation for all people who call on his name, right? But that according to the scriptures part is how you make sense of that. You're like, well, Jesus, Messiah, I don't know what that means. How does a guy dying 2,000 years ago have anything to do with my life at all? The scriptures give you the framework where that makes sense. Because not all of our worldviews um, understand that. And as I said at the very, very beginning of this, if you're listening to me talking right now, and you don't know who Jesus is, you might be like, this sounds like crazy talk. And it's, the Bible says it does. It's foolishness to people who don't understand, right? According to the scriptures. And then he died, which, again, we talked last week, surprised everybody. Like, hey, I don't get that part. Dying for our sins on the cross. <sighs> but then he comes back. And they're talking about this because people saw it as a historical fact. The same kind of way that, like, Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. You know, I don't believe in that. Like, well, we have a photo of it. And there was a lot of people there. And they wrote down what happened. I don't believe in the Gettysburg Address. It's a weird thing to say, right? You're like, well, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. And you're like, why? Because it doesn't happen that often? And you go, well... Yeah, like people don't rise from the dead. Go, well, that's why we're talking about it. Because if it happened all the time, it wouldn't be a big deal. But it did. And there, he's bringing it up this way. I want you to understand that Jesus Christ, who is God himself, comes as a human being, lives a human life, dies for the sins of humanity at the hands of the world. Then he shows back up. And that showing back up puts the exclamation point on all the other stuff. He's like, they're not in charge anymore. The Bible talks about principalities, powers, these kinds of things. So I want to read you this quote. <laughs> and talk about something that's, that's silly. Kayla, come on up here. I like this book. I highly recommend. You're going to have to go find it on, um, on Amazon. They're like, you can tell by the cover. This, isn't, this was not published recently. This is like graphic design done in Microsoft Word. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's a book by Leslie Newbegin called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, which is, that's, I mean, if that title doesn't get you going, I don't know. <laughs> Let me explain. The gospel is what I was just reading you, okay? About, the gospel is the story of Jesus. It's the whole story of Jesus. The gospel isn't, to be accurate, the gospel isn't, a plan for your salvation, okay? It includes that, and it is your salvation, but the gospel is the story of Jesus. We have four of them. The gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're called the gospel because they are the gospel, and they explain the 
the, the truth of who Jesus is in light of all the books that come before them. And they're illuminated further by Paul and these other guys coming later. You're like, gosh, why are you talking about all this? The point is, the gospel is the story of Jesus. The effect of the gospel is the restoration of all things and the salvation of those who call on his name. He says you're saved by it. I'm not talking, you, you hear it? Am I making sense here? I know I'm using words a little differently than normal. The gospel is the story of Jesus. We have the task of living it out in a pluralist society, which means people don't believe the same thing. So what this book is, is a collection of just thoughts on the matter. You know, because I don't know if you've noticed, it's not easy. You know, people go, I don't believe that. And you're like, what we believe, and I'm including you and me in this. I'm including myself. I'll just say it in first person. What I believe has no effect on what is real. I'll, I'll give a stupid example in a minute. But what I believe has no effect on what is real. What you believe has no effect on what is real. We've shoved Jesus into a personal category. Some of us, it's just, well, this is, this is how I got saved. Or this is just my salvation. I don't need it to bother you. I don't want it to bother you. That's not contending for the faith. Do you, you see the difference here? Or this is what I believe. You believe whatever you want. It's totally fine. Like, who am I to say? That's not contending for the faith. That's not how this works. The gospel is the story of Jesus in space-time reality. Like what we call real, not imaginary world, not even a good imaginary world like Narnia or something like that. It's like really now, like in the real world, like 2,000 years ago, alive. Like if you had the time machine in Back to the Future, you could go back, even though they put the wrong date in for his birth. But that was a deep, James got that. That was a deep Back to the Future reference for you people. <laughs> go watch it again. Anyway. The birth of Christ was not December 25th, 20, whatever. Okay, let me read this. In the cross. So, so how does it matter, right? The gospel in a pluralist society. How do we contend for the faith in our society, in our world? What does the, what does the cross in the life of Jesus affect? The answer is everything. And I think these words help frame it in a way that might open our minds a little bit. Because the more churchy you get, the less you realize that. My experience in church culture has been that the longer the time you spend in it, often, the less you realize that this matters. It starts to matter more and more just to you. It get, the world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. It can't. I'm not saying this happened to everybody. So if you're like, well, that didn't happen to me. Amen. Great. Pray for some other people. The, 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 the natural progression oftentimes is that your world gets more and more self-focused, more and more, you know, smaller. The gospel is huge. That's what he's trying. So I'm trying to break our minds out of that. In the cross, Christ has disarmed the powers, all the powers, right? He has unmasked them. He's not destroyed them, but has cast the ruler of this world out of his usurped throne. The structural elements in the world as we know it, from the basic structure of the physical world, to the social and political structures of the nations, to the customs and traditions by which human beings are normally guided. All of that. The death of Christ was the unmasking of the powers. You think like God himself comes as a human being and he lets people kill him wrongly, unmasking their powers. 
Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate weren't uniquely wicked men. They were acting out their roles as guardians of the political, moral, and religious order. They acted as representatives of what the New Testament calls the world, this present age. That same space-time reality I was talking about. When God raised the crucified Jesus, this present age and its structures were exposed, illuminated, and unmasked, but not destroyed. The cross and the resurrection seen together mean both judgment and grace. Both wrath against sin and endless patience. God still upholds the structures. Without them, the world would collapse and human life would be unthinkable. But the structures lose their pretended absoluteness. Nothing now is absolute except God. He is known in Jesus Christ. Everything else is relativized. You understand? Let me read that again. Nothing now is absolute except God as he is known in Jesus Christ. Nothing else is absolute except God as he is known in Jesus Christ. Everything else is relativized. What else is relativized? Everything. That is the bottom line for Christian thinking and the starting point for Christian action in the affairs of the world. So God is calling us to contend for the faith through this book of Jude. And he's the story of what Jesus did, the gospel, the story of Jesus ultimately leads to the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation 20 through 22. So this is, now there's a new heaven and a new earth. And then there isn't any more crying. And there isn't any more pain. And there isn't any more suffering. And it's going to end. That's the end of the story. That's why this matters. And you go, what does that affect? It affects everything. And that's how we live now because we know that. We could put up with this crap. The, uh, but you have to experience it. That's why, now look, we're going to go back. The book of Jude. It's written by Jesus' brother. We go, well, <laughs> I'm talking about an objective truth here. An objective thing that happened. Jesus either, Abraham Lincoln either spoke the Gettysburg Address or he didn't. He either did it or it's a big conspiracy for some reason, right? Jesus either rose from the dead or he didn't. Okay? Your opinion on it, we don't get to vote. Just like you don't get to vote about the Gettysburg Address. How you understand it, you might have things to say. But that it happened is not the discussion. Again, we can discuss whether or not it happened, but we, but our belief in it doesn't change whether or not it happened. You follow? <laughs> you go, I'm not sure yet. This is who I want to talk to. Because you have this thing called objective. Like, this just happened. Like, if I jump off this, I'll go down. Because there's this thing called gravity. Like, I don't believe in gravity. It doesn't matter. It works whether you believe it or not. You know, you can find out. And then there's a subjective experience. Because if I said, you know, guys, if I jump out of here, I can just, like, float. You'd be like, well, that doesn't match my subjective experience of gravity. Like, most people who jump off will fall down. You might be able to jump really high, but you're still going to, it ain't going to last very long. You know what I mean? 
So there's objective, the thing, like gravity, and then there's a subjective, my experience with it. Some of us have experienced gravity more than other people, you know. Both of these things are important. You go, I don't know about some of the stuff you're saying. It's fine, okay? When I was a kid, it was before the internet, which is shocking to some people. I don't know what, I'm mean, using the term kid loosely. When I was in, the, in high school, we got the internet in my house. But before that, there wasn't really an internet. So you couldn't Google anything. You had to like get magazines and stuff. I mean, every, y'all, most of y'all know. I'm telling this for you guys because you might not remember. Like, There wasn't just Google all the time, you know? And YouTube, YouTube has not been out that long, like at all. So when somebody told you something, let's just say about a video game, let's just say more specifically about Mario 1, let's just say most specifically that they said, if you got to the end of this stage and did this weird thing, you could go to a negative level. And let's just say you heard a friend say that. That doesn't sound true. That's a lie. And then let's just say, no, I've done it. I've seen it done. I'm like, I'm sure you have. Just like the other people that could jump over the flagpole. I believe you, you know. This, this did not match my experience. There's no negative level. And they're like, okay, I've actually done it. I know how you do it. You go to this thing, you get on this pipe, and the end of World 2, 1, 2, and then you can jump and you do this thing. You can slide through the wall. And I know there's a normal warp zone over there if you go up on top. But if you go this through the wallway, which doesn't make sense because you're sliding through a brick wall, the pipe that lands right there goes to negative one. I've seen it happen. And I was like, that's not true. Like, there's no way to do it. And then you spend maybe hours, I don't know, my brother's probably watching it confirm, you try to make this happen. It doesn't work. It's not real. It's not there. There's no internet for me to check this out on. As an adult man, which I am now, in case you were not sure, there's this thing called YouTube or this thing called Instagram or whatever, and I see a guy go to world negative one. And I'm like, that's not true. It's not a real thing. I watched him do it. I actually saw it this morning and I was like, that's, come on. It's a real thing. The cartridge I had in my hand my whole life as a kid had that in there. I just didn't know. Because everybody told me some stupid stuff and none of it worked. Okay? Jude is Jesus' actual brother. Like, he lived with the guy. And then you're like, you find out later, uh, your brother's God. You're like, yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, he seemed nice growing up and all, but I mean, that's a high, God's a pretty high bar, right? There's a couple references. I'll just make a couple references here just so you know. Ah, come on. Matthew 13, 55, Mark 6, 3. And then later in Acts 1, 14. These guys, they grew up with Jesus. They had to sort, and we're talking about real life stuff here, guys. You find out Jesus Jesus is God. He goes to the synagogue and says, here's the scripture for the day. You're now hearing it fulfilled right now. And they're like, what are you talking about? There's another time Mary and his brothers go like, hey, you've obviously lost your mind, so we need to bring you back home. You know, and they're like, he's like, these are my people here, you know. And they're all having to figure it out, just like we are. <laughs> and 
They do. In Acts, they finally, they, I get it now. But it took a minute. It takes a minute sometimes. And Paul, I'll use him as the last example. Paul was killing Christian people. We went through Acts last year, so you know the story. Paul's like, he knows the scriptures. He knows this is, a, this is all bunk. He knows that these Christian people have lost their minds and they're polluting the Jewish people. He's like, we've got to wipe these people out. He had letters to kill people. He was approving when they killed Stephen. He, he knows he's right. So much knowing he's right that this, that this whole Christian faith thing is crazy. He's willing to kill other people and arrest them for it. I'm pretty sure none of y'all are there. Even if you're like, I'm not too sure about this God thing. You're not killing people over it, probably. He is. Guy is bold. He's like, I'm, good. I'm taking this. I'm, I'm solving this problem. And God, in somehow in his divine wisdom, goes, that's the guy I need. And Paul, must of his shock as he's going to take care of business with some other Christian people, runs into Jesus on the side of the road. And I'll read it to you. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. This is in Acts 9. Against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he, went, if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. <laughs> I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They had heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. For three days he was blinded, did not eat or drink anything, because his world had been rocked. Here's the thing, guys. I'm not saying objective truth of any kind is totally superior to subjective. I'm saying as a Christian person, you need both. Okay? Frankly, the danger in the book of Jude is that our subjective experience has way more power over us than the objective one does. That's why false teachers can float around among us and get us to think things. Whether they're famous or, or who knows, infamous or whatever, they can float around because it sounds right, I guess, or something. You know, like there's a subjective experience that you get drawn into which overrides that. A reminder of this is the important thing. But the honest ones, people like Jude, who are like, I don't know if my brother's God, that sounds like a stretch. He, 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 he caught on. The one like Paul, who's aggressively against it, he caught on, and like I said, he wrote most of these other letters we have. And even people like me, who would have sworn this negative one Mario World thing was absolutely, completely not true, have been shown to be wrong. So let's stand. Father, I pray that you would, that we would receive this warning from you about false teaching in our midst, false teaching that we even teach ourselves. And Father, I pray that we would be open to your truth, wherever it leads us, no matter how confronting it is, like Jesus, when you encounter Paul, you confronted him. Father, I pray that we would 
have our eyes opened, or in his case, even blinded to, but open to the objective truth of who you are, the gospel of who you are, that you came according to the scriptures, you died and you arose again according to the scriptures, and then you would also back it up with a subjective experience that, like Jude prayed for, the peace and the mercy and the love of God would overflow in our lives, we might be able to contend for the faith in our pluralistic society with all of those things. And Jesus, I pray that you would do that in us, and I pray for your, your movement here in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you need to come forward and pray, come forward and pray. We have the altars open, and Kayla lead us in a song.
thank you, Lord, for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, that you're calling each of us, God. We thank you, Lord, for your encouragement. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us, Lord. I pray right now as we leave, Lord, that we would leave feeling encouraged, Lord, by your Spirit, feeling empowered by you to go to preach the gospel everywhere we go, Lord, and everything that we do, Lord. I pray that our hearts and our minds would be locked in with you, Jesus, no matter what type of uh, atmosphere we find ourselves in. I pray that we would be uh, having that heart after you everywhere we go, Lord, because our affections would be locked on you. Our minds would be set on eternity. Our emotions, Lord, would be uh, with you, Lord. So I thank you, Lord. I pray that you bless each one of us as we leave. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for being here.